Hello, Monetization Nation. Today I'm joined by Scott Abel. Scott is known as the Content Wrangler. Scott is a content strategist who helps companies improve the way they author, maintain, and deliver information to those who need it. He co-authored the book, Intelligent Content, A Primer, and The Language of Content Strategy. He's also the creator of the Content Strategy series of books for XML Press. Um, Brand Quarterly Magazine ranks Scott as one of the 50 most influential marketing thought leaders. And we are so grateful to have Scott on the show today. Oh, well, thanks, Nathan, for having me. I appreciate being here. Can we start off by having you share with us something that you are super passionate about? I am super passionate about turning content and, and respecting content, so information that organizations produce, as a business asset and treating it as such. How do businesses best treat their content as business assets? Uh, they would respect it in the same way they would um, with money. For example, most companies offer their employees a 401k or some kind of retirement plan. It would be unacceptable and pretty much unheard of if you called down to the department in charge of managing your money and they said, oh, yeah, you probably don't worry. You probably have some money in there. We don't know how much because Betsy, who used to work here, and I'm not blaming anybody named Betsy. This is a fictional name. <laughs> Betsy, who used to work here, she used to, she used to manage all that and it you know, we're not really sure how she did it. So we don't, we can't find your balance. That would be totally unacceptable. It would also be unacceptable for a company that manufactures products to call down and say, do we have all the components? How many components do we have of the, the pieces that we need to make our car or our airplane? And for the people to say, I don't know, or we can't find them. And yet right. content somehow it's okay. People create content and they plaster it all over our internal networks. They store them on folders in their desktop. They store them on in the LAN in the local area network. They're inside of content management systems. Sometimes they're on personal devices that are carried along with people that they bring to work. And so it's this fragmented existence of content. It's like a big content hairball and you cannot yeah. You can't um, command it. So I believe organizations should be able to do anything they need to do at any moment in time with the information they produce. And in order to do that, they have to build a system that anticipates that that's the capability that they need. And they don't often realize it until it's way too late. So if they've you know, been creating content the way that your teachers taught you, that was taught to you for a very specific reason. It wasn't taught to you to make your content capable of existing in this world of machines that we live in, in which machines process content in order to deliver it to people. It used to be just us, you know, Nathan, if you wanted to deliver a message to me, you need to get in front of me in some way. And then you just tell me, but now I need to be able to tell people at scale in multiple languages all around the world, different time zones. And I can't just have Nathan and Scott trying to tweak that content manually one at a time. We can't grow that way. So yeah. It's really about how to, how to use your content and the money that you spend to produce it in the most effective and efficient ways. Can you share with us your journey, your story to become an expert content strategist? Yeah, I uh, had my first job outside. I was an investigative reporter by education and uh, the journalism industry was being impacted during the time that I left school by the internet. And so, you know, most forward thinking people could see that that was going to shift everything to digital eventually. And so there was not really a lot of wiggle room for new college graduates to just pop out and, you know, make a great salary, be able to buy a house or whatever. Instead, you'd be saddled with, you know, uh, student loan debt and working not so great of a job. So I got very fortunate and I was hired as a 
a technical writer uh, at a medical device and pharmaceutical company. And they were actually very serious about their content. Unlike many other companies, regulated industries are particularly sensitive about all the words and the content they produce. And they do value them as an asset because without them, the regulators will not approve their drugs or products for sale. So the information is the gateway. Without being approved, you know sell, right? <laughs> so we're now at this point where um, my journey was interrupted because I thought I was going there to write. What they really wanted was someone there to help them think through how they should change the way they create, manage, and deliver information so that they could get those drugs approved faster, which would be benefit to human beings, right? At the time, it was the AIDS crisis. And so there were some uh, negative publicity moments for pharmaceutical companies when advocates who were trying to get newer drugs on the market faster to save people's lives didn't understand the complications that pharmaceutical companies went through in order to produce the, inf the information they needed to produce this blockbuster drug. But there was also a lot of red tape. So the government was able to cut out that red tape and make it faster for drug companies to publish their information and get their drugs to market. Well, the pharmaceutical company I was working for saw that the cost of not having their drug approved, which they called the opportunity cost, right? The cost of uh, being able to not be able to sell their product while they were uh, messing around with their content was millions of dollars every day. This was a blockbuster drug that will remain nameless. And it, um, it, it was worth, let's say, several million dollars a day. So every single day that we delayed getting the information to the Food and Drug Administration wow. to get the drug was a loss. So when writers would argue, and they did, over things like a smooth segue between paragraphs, I would have I would I, my job was to scrutinize the regulations that the writers were to follow. And of course, there's no requirement for a smooth segue between <laughs> paragraphs in any regulation that U.S. government wrote. That even the regulation that that they wrote wasn't smooth segues between paragraphs. You could barely read this legal mumbo jumbo. But once you get down to it, it wasn't the inconvenience of having the, the segue between the paragraphs that the writers didn't like, didn't equal millions of dollars of cost every day. So the writers lost, right? It was my job to figure out how do we take the pet peeves and the what people think and what they feel out of the writing process and make it more like a content factory. They yeah. need to be able to produce that content in order to get their drug approved and without approval, they can't sell it. So they needed a factory approach. And so we borrowed, my, my, my job was to borrow concepts from the Japanese Kanban um, agile manufacturing uh, thought processes and apply it to information as opposed to physical goods. And then where'd you go from there? Then I, uh, I recognized that everything else was nonsense. I was like, really, I, I got lucky. I landed in a very serious company that exists for a serious purpose. They're not messing around and it's all about science. So once I realized that these are science-driven people, I of course mistakenly thought all other humans should of course act logically and want to use science uh, to change the way that they create content. So I hung up a shingle and became a billable hourly consultant. That was great. I got to solve different challenges and different kinds of companies using this background I got from the pharmaceutical industry. But then I realized I'm not scalable. It's not fun to just be billable all the time. It's really a, a hassle. And you're not really solving world peace, you know, or hunger or anything like that. Sometimes it's some particular thing that a company thinks is important, which isn't all that important in the scheme of things. So I realized that that wasn't my value. So I decided I would take the journalism education that I had and kind of 
put it together with the stuff I had learned about content in a regulated industry and start teaching other people how to do that. And as the more I talked about it and the more I basically used no nonsense language too, I don't subscribe to the, you have to be polite about everything all the time. You know, if it turns out that lots of people are dying because some processes are in the way then we need to knock those damn things out of the way, right? There's, yeah, it, it, right. it's not really a time to be like, well, we kind of sort of used to do it that way, but we don't really do it that way. So let's just keep doing what we're doing. So uh, my career ended up becoming, I became an instigator for change. And I started being getting the attention of software and services companies who said, wait a minute, you're saying all the things that our salespeople really can't say. That's what we want to say, but you're just saying it in the no bullshit way. You know, so I would hear companies, they would do a presentation, they would talk about how fabulous their content was or whatever. And then I would ask them, well, what happens if uh, you wake up one day and it's all gone? And they would say, what do you mean? I said, well, they broke into your software last year and stole all of our passwords. Why can't they just break it and erase all the shit? Yeah. <laughs> and they have no answer for it because there's no plan. There, that, that's, the, that's the dirty little secret. There is no plan. Everyone's given a computer and you open up documents that are blank and they expect you in your job to know what exactly to type and why. And that's because it's thought of as a writing is like art. Oh, well, you know, everybody went to school. We all learned to write. She's a writer, he's a writer. We hired them to write. That's what they do. So they sit you down at a computer and they tell you, go ahead, do your job. But that's no longer sufficient. We really need to have a, a rationale, a plan for every single piece of content. If you're gonna invest in paying somebody to curate or create content, you should be able to track and govern it. You should be able to prove the re return on investment for every single piece. And you shouldn't be able to deploy it at any minute whatsoever. There should be none of this. Uh, we don't We don't have that. Yeah. <laughs> we do. We have to start a meeting and then have a committee. And then we have to go and ask for money. And then we have to do this and we have to do that. So I recognize that companies that grow exponentially, they don't have any of that in the way. They strip all that out of the way and they start to you know, follow these more disciplined scientific approaches yes. to information management. And that's why they can scale so quickly. Now, what we don't know is, will those companies be around 50 years, right? I don't know. I can't tell you what longevity, but they were able to hurdle the existing players and disrupt yeah. the market because they thought it through and they were able to deliver information quickly, automatically. Think about Uber. Uber doesn't have to sit around and wait like, Nathan, go find uh, Scott a car and then text him and you know <laughs> where the car is and tell him to go to this yeah. corner. It's all automated. automated, but it's all automated because it's structured and there's a content strategy behind it. And there's content engineering that actually engineers and choreographs the information. So it goes back and forth between devices, by the way, yeah. And then the device delivers the content to the person. Well, that means that we need to write machine processable content because it hits a machine first. But people who are writers say, I write for the human. I write for Nathan. Yes, you do. But it's going to be delivered by some machine that doesn't have a name or might have a name. <laughs> and yeah. it's going to go through them first. And in order to do it effectively and take advantage of technology, we can't write like we used to. We can't write a, a narrative. It can't be a story. You could tell a story along the way, but for example, recipes are a great example. When you want a recipe, the real reason you want a recipe is to make some dinner or food of some sort, right? You're, you're cooking yeah. something or preparing, baking, whatever you want to call it. And you need ingredients, times, units of measure and instructions. But what do you get? This is a story about the apple pie my grandma loved. Mm -hmm. Grandma was a Tennessee woman, blah, 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 blah. And they tell a whole story. That's nothing I need to make the pie. 
Yep. It's all entertaining. And if I bought a book about apple pies and your grandma wrote it and she had great stories about apple pies, that might be delightful. But I want to just make the damn pie. <laughs> and if you know the intent of your customer, what they're looking for, you can segment that and you can say, you can have the whole story about the apple pie. Or if you just quickly want to jump to the recipe and print it or share it with a friend or compare it to your grocery list, you should be able to do that immediately. And you can if we prepare the content in a way that anticipates that capability and the need of the user that wants the information. What do you think are the biggest tectonic shifts that are affecting business today? Oh, it's super easy. It's called the fourth industrial revolution. Feel free to Google that. There's a great video from the World uh, Economic Forum and the Davos Summit has also some videos about this and they will tell you what the word means. I will briefly tell you that during our existence as human beings, we've had four revolutions that were industrial in nature, business related, not um, wars. Uh, the first revolution, second, third, where one technology changed the world. One example is the steam powered engine made locomotion and trains possible. Trains required train tracks, which made neighborhoods in places where there was no people possible. It also made transportation of goods and people possible. All of a sudden there was commerce. There was also mail because you could deliver from one part of the country to another. That was one, one technology. Today in the fourth industrial revolution, we are going through probably 30 tectonic shifts at a time, maybe more. So it's not even fair to make it one. It's not one. It's, yep. it's intelligence, artificial intelligence, machine learning, 3D printing, um, nanotechnology, genetic engineering, splicing of human being genes, right? And plants and things of that nature. Um, the internet of things, um, uh, automated uh, uh, autonomous vehicles, um, sensors that can sense anything from all over the world and collect the information on demand in a central repository and just, you know, kind of disperse it out immediately, all interchangeable, all without human beings involved. Once the human beings in invent and turn the things on, they're functioning and they interact constantly. These things are so monumental that most human beings are unable to grasp the changes that are occurring in our society. The people who are left behind will definitely be behind. There's yeah. not gonna be an easy way to catch up. Companies that have not invested in structuring their information so that machines can process it will be waiting for a long time for the fictional star Trek, Star Wars, um, computer systems that they imagine are going to be possible because we have devices like A-L-E-X-A -E and S-I-R-I, <laughs> who I can't say their names because they'll start talking on our show, um, are not intelligent. They're machine learning. And that means that they were taught what to say. So you can teach them badly or you can teach them well, but you cannot make them do more than that. It's not possible at the time and it's not pragmatic or practical to try to even incorporate those things. But if you provide your content and you create your content in a way that machines understand it, when machines change and they, you know, they change all the time, as they get more intelligent, they will see the cues in your content and they'll be able to act upon it better than if you just created big chunks of content and didn't care about the machines at all. If you just wrote letters and stories to your customers so they can read them and you didn't care about the machines, you're going to miss out on a huge opportunity for the machines to do work for you that will actually bring revenue into your company. Companies that are not set up this way will die. This will be my prediction as well. Um, you've already seen um, Eastman Kodak and Blockbuster fall by the way because of their inability to see the disruptors. And it is definitely an innovative disruptor that will shake up your party and make your life miserable. Yeah. 
Thank you for that, sharing. I'm yeah. so impressed you could list so many tectonic shifts all at once. Right well, I have a presentation on this. Um, it's actually part of an exponential business growth initiative. Uh, okay. your, your listeners can find out more about that on a website called OpenEXO, E as an elephant, X as an X-ray, O as an organization, OpenEXO. Um, it's an online platform of uh, folks who are interested in helping companies grow exponentially. And there's actually an entire discipline around it. There's a, a book that will show you how to transform your organizations and company leaders. And we're talking about CEOs and no, no one else, usually CEO level people who recognize that their company is ripe for disruption by an innovative uh, competitor. They're freaking out. They're not worried about Scott's content strategy crap. That's not an issue for them. What they're worried about is what happens if I'm wrong and I promise the board of directors I would deliver 3% growth and what happens if all of a sudden a competitor comes in now that growth is being eaten up, I'm not gonna be the CEO anymore and I'm not gonna meet these goals and get my um, reward in the end. So they're incentivized to, to build new capability, uh, but the employees are really the problem. It's all of us, it's the people, it's, it's in our nature to be creatures of habit. And we do not, as much as we like to sometimes say we do, we do not really enjoy the kinds of changes that are coming toward us because they will make us rethink patterns that exist in the way that we feel comfortable working. And we often assign that comfortableness with our value. And so if you move outside your comfort zone, you might not feel like you're as good as your job and you begin to question, are they going to replace me? Am I still valuable? Is this machine going to take over? And so there's this big uh, complication now where the technology is totally there. We can use the technology to do better, but the people are resistant to change or afraid of change um, or may just find it to be scary for some reason. And those things are not things I can automate away. Yeah. And the right. businesses that don't do that though, even though it's scary, if we don't do it, we will be leapfrogged by the competitors who are taking advantage of totally, those. Totally, totally, totally. And it's really difficult for people to even grasp the concept of leapfrogging. Um, I was taught a lesson in leapfrogging when I landed in um, India and I was in um, their equivalent of Silicon Valley uh, in, in, in India and there were no telephone lines. And yet I lived in San Francisco where there are tons of lines across the streets going between houses, yeah. right? there's none of this there. And at first I thought, yeah. well, no, they never had it. Yeah. They went from no communication to cell phones. So they leapfrogged over the whole thing. So if your idea was, you know, let's, let's give them phones, let's start putting phone lines up and then eventually they'll get cell phones. Like, oh, they don't even need that. They jumped right over it. And there's a lot of this hurdling that's happening. And I don't think and I think it's easy for human beings to encapsulate all of the changes that are happening and put it together in some kind of way that makes sense. One other tectonic shift that, that we've been talking a lot about is recurring revenue. And this big shift from a one-time sale to turning our customers into recurring customers. Um, any strategies or secrets or stories that you'd like to share with us about recurring revenue? Yeah, the most important thing about rec recurring revenue from a content perspective is that the content enables that to happen. You can't get a subscriber without content, right? And they're probably going to have content as part of what you deliver to them in the promise for them joining you and paying you a subscription fee every month. Um, so you need to make sure that that content is automated and it's personalized for that person. And the irony is, it's kind of a paradox. In order to provide an individualized experience, you have to standardize all your content first. <laughs> 
right? Which sounds weird. People are like, wait a minute, if it's standardized, isn't it like generic and it's for everybody? And I'm like, no, no, no. Standardized just means that we've agreed to do it in a certain way between two or more parties. So what you're agreeing to do is do it in a way that computers and people can both pass through and understand. And in order to do it, you have to meet certain criteria. For example, if you build a website, you are supporting the, the standard HTTP. There is no website that's HTTPS. We just decide HTTPQ, right? You can't just change it. It's a standard and you have to support those standards. And once you've got everything standardized, you can tell a machine, Nathan is not our standard. Nathan is a subset of our standard. Give Nathan the pieces of content that he needs that meet his needs. And because each one of them is individual and granular and they each have their identity, machines can move them around and only they can give you almost the same experience they give me. But there might be one piece of content different because there's something they know about you that they don't know about me, or they know that you like something and I like something different. So they're going to give us exactly the same content. You can't run a subscription service unless you keep people wanting to pay the subscription. And the minute that you make them feel like you don't know who they are or what they bought from you, like if you're a subscriber and you go back to a website and they try to make you subscribe again. Right. Or this happened to me this morning. I already bought a ticket to a conference and this weekend, I think I got three or four emails trying to get me to join, to register for the conference. Yeah. And and I'm a conference organizer and I know, and, and information management expert. So I know why that happens. Those are two different databases. There's no logic between them. And, you know, that's kind of a, um, that's a difficult challenge for a small organization or a one-off effort. Like a conference might be part of a bigger entity, but maybe it's just two people who are responsible for planning it and making the emails and, you know, so their decisions are what, what limit what's possible. But if it were, if it were, if they had the resources they need, they could make it so that you would only experience things that make sense. Like if I just came up to you, you gave me $20 to buy a ticket to go to the carnival or whatever. And then I turned around and saw you again and said, okay, $20. You would be like, dude, did you not just pay attention? I just gave you $20. You just said the same thing to me. This is the kind of experience that makes people want to not subscribe or not pay, right? Because you're you're not paying attention to them. So you have to remember when you deliver content that it's really important to remember who they are um, and then recommend with based on the, the, what you've remembered. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, we should treat our content as one of our most valuable business assets. Number two, with the right systems, organizations should be able to do almost anything they need to do at any moment in time with the information they produce. Number three, we need to write machine processable content because it hits the machine first. Number four, companies that leverage tectonic shifts can often leapfrog their competitors. We must take advantage of these tectonic shifts if we don't want to be leapfrogged ourselves. Number five, we need to make sure the content for our subscribers is automated and personalized. We have to standardize our content before we can personalize it. To learn more about or connect with Scott, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or visit his website at thecontentwrangler.com. And there's links to both of those sites on the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. You can also get a copy of my free passion marketing ebook and learn how to become a top priority of your ideal customers at passionmarketing.com. 
You can also subscribe to Monetization Nation on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, our Facebook group, and on your favorite podcast platform. And if you receive value from this episode, I would be very grateful if you commented on, liked, or shared it. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in your content creation and marketing. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.